the book of James, chapter 3. I want to read through this text, but I do hope you'll keep it there on your uh, lap handy because um, the book of James is kind of like the book of Proverbs. It, it doesn't really, in some places, lend itself to you know, a, a structured outline as much as it lends itself to a word-by-word study, and that's what it has to, we have to do tonight. But who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not, from that, is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Now for the last six weeks we've been driving home the fact that the book of James is a book that insists that if you proclaim to be a Christian, you need to act like it. And that if you're saved and you know it, then your life's going to show it. And there is something totally incompatible about a profession without a practice. In the 60s, during the civil rights movement, and the burnings and the riots, etc., a reporter interviewed the Trappist monk by the name of Thomas Merton. And this reporter asked him what he thought that we could do to help the civil rights movement. Thomas Merton's answer was as profound as it was profane. He said, quote, You don't do a damn thing until you start being what you say you are, a Christian. Well, in a less profane way, the book of James says the same thing. Before you do anything, you need to just be who you say you are, a Christian. And he draws these marvelous contrasts. It's a book of contrast. He contrasts faith with works. And he contrasts grace and the law. And he contrasts the bridal tongue and the uncontrolled tongue. And he contrasts the bridled horse and the untamed beast. And he comes tonight to one of the greatest contrasts of all, the contrast of the wise and the unwise. And he says there is a wisdom that is from above, and then there is a wisdom of this world. In other words, he's about to lay before us again and drive home the fact that there is a way of living that comes from there to here. It's totally different from the world way. Let me see if I can illustrate it. A few years ago, I was pastoring in West Texas. I had this guy in my church by the name of Charles Cobble. He worked for Gifford Hill uh, Irrigation Company, and he got a contract to go to Saudi Arabia to develop the desert and, and with irrigation. And they had this, the government had this plan, Saudi government had this plan of sinking these huge irrigation wells down into the desert, hundreds of feet, and drawing water and water in that desert. He came back after about a couple of years over there and told me all about it. He says the most 
remarkable thing he's ever been, of which he's ever been a part. He said, literally, he said, I saw a portion of the desert transformed. He said, when he started pumping that water out and put it on the desert, it just literally turned into a garden. And he said, one night they had this special event. All the, the, the emperor, the, you know, the, the head honchos of Arabia, of Saudi came out. And he said, that right in the middle of this desert howling wilderness was this oasis that we'd created. And he rolled out this red carpet. And he said, we ate the best food right out there in the middle of the desert. What he's saying was that they brought something totally unlike the desert to the desert. Now what James is saying is that there is a way of life that is totally unlike the way the world lives. I want you to bring that which is there to here. He calls it wisdom. Now I need to help you to understand three things about this word wisdom before we get into this because you're going to totally miss the mark if you don't get these. First of all, this wisdom that he's talking about can be shown. He says there in verse um, 13, let him show. Now what I mean by that is that what he's talking about when he talks about wisdom is not a thought, and it's not, a, it's not intellectualism, it's not uh, a system of concepts, it's not something metaphysical. It's something that you can see. It has flesh and blood, it has it has outlines and forms, it can be shown, it can be seen. Secondly, this wisdom that he's talking about here is this practical knowledge that God gives, the ability to take the facts and relate them to life. Now, if you're getting a definition, get this. It is the ability to put things together and relate God's truth to their life. It is an understanding of the kind of life that God wants us to live on this earth. That's what he's talking about. It is an understanding, it's the ability to put it all together, to get all the ideas and the concepts and the teachings that are available to, the, to, to faith, put them all together and get an understanding of how God wants us to live. That's what wisdom is in this context third thing you need to understand about this is that, that any other way is doomed to failure. Ultimately, any other philosophy or way of life is doomed to failure. Now, it seemed pretty wise to build Tower to Babel. I mean, that was history's ultimate quintessent social enterprise. seemed wise to do that. It ended in, in frustration and failure. It seemed like a wise thing to do when the famine came to Canaan for Abraham to go down to Egypt. Now, didn't that seem, wouldn't that be, make sense? If you don't have food here and it's a famine, head off down to, to Egypt. He ran ahead of God and he ended up in, in failure. It seemed like a wise thing for Saul to put the armor on little David to send him into battle. That seemed like a wise thing to do. Don't send him in there unprepared. It was a terrible thing to do. He couldn't even carry it in the first place. It seemed like a wise thing for the disciples when it came time to eat. They didn't have any food to dismiss the crowd and the multitude so they could go get something to eat. That would be the way we'd do it, wouldn't it? Go down to the corner and, you know, the fast food place, get something to eat, come back for church. God had another way of doing it. Ultimately, every way that is not God's way it is doomed ultimately to failure. Now... With that kind of, you know, that's the runway. We're going to fix it to take off here on runway, on, the, on runway one. If, if, if you can see, if, this, if wisdom is a way of life 
that God wants us to live, what does it look like? Now let me tell you something. You don't come to the book of James without seeing illustration after illustration, example after example. You don't have to, you know, you don't have to go away wondering what he's talking about. He's going to describe what it is, what it looks like. And there are two tests that you can put to wisdom to see if it's really wisdom or if it's, if it's wise or unwise. The first test is this, good behavior. Good behavior. Now it's found in verse 13. If you have a King James Bible, the real one, um, it's, it's the word conversation. Now, 13 times in the book of James, in the King James translation, you'll see that word conversation. It's an unfortunate translation. He's not talking about dialogue or speech. He's talking about a lifestyle. And he said that a person who is wise is a good man or a good woman. The word literally means, now watch this, to return. It means to turn back to something. It is one's willingness to change or to alter. Now here's the test. How much are you willing to change your life so that it patterns the truth? It means moldable. How much are you willing to change, to alter your life so that it patterns the truth? The wise man is a man who is like a lump of clay in God's hand. And he says to God, just mold me and help me to do what you want me to do. The second test is the test of deeds of gentleness, as you see it in verse 13. Deeds of gentleness. In our day, gentleness means spinelessness. The word literally means the taming of a wild horse, to bring a a high-spirited horse under control. And it pictures this person who who has this tremendous dynamic, and yet that power is brought under the control of someone else. Um, I was out jogging uh, yesterday morning early. Yeah, I still do. And... uh, I was coming down the street over there, it was early in the morning, and about two blocks away I saw this little child at the end, you know, at the end of a leash of a big old Doberman pincher. Now she wasn't taking him out for a walk, he was taking her out for a run. I mean, he, she was just holding on at the end of that leash, and that Doberman pincher was coming down 4th Street over there, full bore. Now I'm not afraid of terrorist bombs and earthquakes, but I am scared to death of a dog. And as I was jogging down that street, and I saw that, that thing unfolding before me up there, I was thinking to myself, now if that dog thinks that I'm a threat to that little girl, we're going to have a problem here. <laughs> and so I'm, you know, I'm thinking as quick as I can, what am I going to do here? And just about, you know, and, I, and I, we were coming you know, to meet each other, and that little girl was just hanging on at the end of that leash, and they got about a block away, and I could, you know, and somehow in dog talk, I just know this Doberman looked over at the little girl and said, do I go for the big guy? You know, <laughs> do I go for him? And, 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 and to my great joy, the girl said, no, real loud. And then she said, stop, sit. And this Doberman just put on the brakes and sat down. Right to my joy, this Doberman, he just, he just came to a screeching halt and he sat down in the middle of the sidewalk. And I, was, I breathed a sigh of relief, I promise you. 
And she was saying, oh, good dog, good dog. And she was hugging on it and petting it. And I'd already made a big detour. I was, I would, I'd crossed the street and I was going way over here. And that dog, you never, never noticed me, never looked, never, never, never glanced my way. He was totally, totally engrossed, totally under control of this little child who was saying, sit. You know. That's just exactly what, well, nearly, <laughs> what James is talking about. He's saying that that person who is living a life that's from there to here, is a person who has been brought under the control of a master. And he lives engrossed in that command. In that command. That, man, let me tell you something. That's, that's the shouting point right there. Is that he can be anything he wants to be. He has that freedom. And he has the power within him to totally refuse and rebel. But he's just totally absorbed in the command. That's the wise man. Now the unwise is found in verse 14. The test. That is the test. And there are two tests here. One of them is the test that he calls bitter jealousy. Bitter jealousy. It's the way the world lives. And wherever there's jealousy, there's bitterness. And a jealous person is a person who is not thinking wisely. He's not even thinking rationally. Bitter jealousy is fierce devotion to one's position without any sensitivity toward the views of others. And that jealous person becomes obsessive and defensive and he wants to protect. And he has a first cousin. It's called, his name is Envy. Now Envy is the mourning of the empty hand. Envy looks at the hands that are empty and mourns the empty hand. Jealousy mourns the full hands that he fears will be empty. He's afraid he's going to lose something. And so he clings to it, and he protects it, and he's possessive of it, and he demands it, and he guards it. And the second test is the test of personal ambition, or selfish ambition, he calls it. Selfish ambition. He's not talking about ambition being wrong. He's talking about selfish ambition being wrong. 1979... A sociologist by the name of Robert Bella set out to conduct extensive interviews with 200 average middle-class Americans. As Bella studied what habits of the heart defined the thoughts and lives of these individuals, a pattern emerged. Many had no sense of community or social obligation. They saw a world as a fragmented place of choice and freedom that yielded little meaning or comfort. They even seem to have lost the language to express any kind of commitment to anything, church, family, community, anything other than themselves. And Bella calls this, listen, he calls this ontological individualism. And by this he means the belief that the individual is the only source of meaning. And he says the basic orientation of these people that, 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 may, be, that may characterize our culture in the, modern, in, the, in the modern age, in the 20th century, the basic orientation is one word, me. The big I, the big me. I'm the only thing that counts. And says Robert Bella, the sociologist, family is fine if it long as it doesn't get in the way of what you want. That's the philosophy. That's 
that's the world's way, wisdom. All right, now, I know there's some homemade pie back there. and We're going to get that. We, we, we just, we, we'll try to get this thing and get through with it in a hurry. All right, now, the characteristics of the unwise. Well, let's, rush, let's look at those. The characteristics of the unwise. The test, we've seen. Now the characteristics, quickly. Arrogance. Arrogance. The justification of our own sin. Boasting in, of our sin. Now let, me show you, let me tell you something. Something that grieves me greatly in our time is not just that we have kicked the traces and gotten off the path, but that we're proud of it. And the thing that bothers me is that, that there's not only the reality that man has, has, has turned away from God, but that he boasts of it. And it deeply concerns me that, that young people have to be subjected to the fact that oftentimes when they go to school that they hear kids, their peers, brag about how much they drank or who had sex with whom. It's not that we are wrong, but that we boast of it. That's the, that's the crime. Then there's second characteristic, is lying against the truth. Now let me tell you what that means. We're going to hold right up next to the cotton, they say, in West Texas. It means false to the truth. It means a betrayal of the Christian commitment. It means that we make a commitment and we lie to the truth of it. That is, we profess to be something we're not. Lying to the truth. Eldon Trueblood says that the worst profanity is not blasphemy, but, but lip service. And Eldon Trueblood said that the cursing that goes on, the worst kind of profanity doesn't take place in the bar room takes place in the church. And he comes to that, one of those commandments is the third, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. He said the worst kind of taking God's name in vain that exists is to claim to be a Christian and don't live like Christ. You lie to the truth. And then he said that it's earthly, that is, it's strictly horizontal. It's based on an earthly standard. It's humanistic. It's the new ager for whom self is the God within. I am God, said Shirley MacLaine on her TV special. And Chuck Colson calls secular humanism the most subtle, dangerous threat that faces our culture, our way of life. Humanistic. It's strictly horizontal. And the next is related to that. It's natural and soulish. It's not of the Spirit of God. It's what I want as a human being, not what God wants. And it's demonic. It's demonic. It has a demonic influence. Now, there's more to say about demonism that I want to get into tonight, but let me tell you, our problem is not Satan worship. Our problem really is not the people who are possessed by Satan. Our problem is the people who are harassed by him and influenced by him. 
And the demonic influence is a powerful influence. All right? Let's look at the wise, the characteristics of the wise. Characteristic of the wise, first of all, he says it is pure. It's free from stain or defilement of any kind, even motive. Jesus said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. For the cleaner the lens, the more brightly shines the great star. The cleaner the life, the purer the life, the more a man sees beyond what the eyes see. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. It means to be sure of Him. To have a life that's blessed by the certainty of Him. It means to, be, to, to practice His presence. Those who are wise are those whose lives are pure all the way down to the motive of their life. And consequently they see God. And they're peaceable, He said. It was Jesus who said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. How can you and I be peacemakers in such a complicated world? Let me suggest three things kind of parenthetically. Just got working on this and got off on all kinds of stuff. How can we be peacemakers, peaceable, in a complicated world? In the first place, you can be committed to the way of Christ in your inner being. Die to self. Ask the Lord to pull the rug out from your life so that you can walk in His way instead. For it's so much easier to pray for what we want than for the power to resist what we don't need. Second, how can I be a peacemaker in this complicated world? I can seek out places of non-peace and try to transform them into places of peace that is the person across the hall from you or the guy that sits next to you in class. Somebody gave us kind of a down-home illustration. He said, what if some, someone looked out, he had a beautiful white fence, and he looked out some morning, a bunch of graffiti painted on it. What's he going to say? He's going to say, what's this world coming to? You know, I mean, there's a bunch of hoodlums in this world. Do something like that. But suppose during the next night, you came into that yard, and painted off with, over that graffiti, and returned that fence to what it was. The next morning he's going to get up and look out and he's going to say, hey, there's somebody in this world that's decent. You remember when you were a kid at Christmas time when somebody always asked, you know, what, what would you want if you could have one thing in the whole wide world? You remember that? You, you must not have went to Monday high, Monday school. That's what we did when we were... You, you, you did that, didn't you? Somebody said, what if you could have one request, one prayer, one, one wish? What would it be? And everybody would say that there could be peace in the whole world. Remember that? That's what everybody said. Want to impress the teacher or something. We'd all say, you know, that everybody could have peace in the world. We've been wanting, we've been wanting peace on earth from the time we were children. What are we doing about it? How can I be a peacemaker in this complicated world? Well, I can find places of non-peace and transform them. I can commit myself that the command of peace would exist to the whole world. Third, characteristic of wise, of the wise, is gentleness. Can't be translated, that word. I can just tell you what it is, what it is not. The man who does not have gentleness is the man who stands up for every jot and tittle of his rights. 
The man who's gentle knows how, knows the time when to relax the demand of the law to a higher demand. Sam Shoemaker has a list of rules for witnessing. His first list, first rule on the list is be a gentleman. Be a gentleman. Fourth, if you're following the list here, it is, wisdom is characterized by the word reasonable. This is the only time it's found in the scripture. It means easily persuaded. Now, don't misunderstand that. It's not talking about some weak, milky toast person. It means the opposite of stubborn. It means conciliatory, open, teachable. It's the ability to put yourself in somebody else's shoes. Now, if you had his genes and chromosomes, and his mother and grand, his mother and father and grandparents, and you had his background, right or wrong, you'd feel, you'd believe, you'd think the same way he thinks. You know, there's some places tonight in this world where people think it's right to eat somebody. You know, and that's not right, but they think it is. And if you had grown up in that culture in the same situation, you'd think the same thing. Reasonable is the ability to put yourself in somebody else's shoes. One night I wanted to really see if I could illustrate it. And I, and I got to this point in my sermon, I was preaching, not this sermon, but when I was talking about mercy and, and, and reasonable, and, and, I, and I acted like I lost my place. I, I acted like that I, I couldn't find. Man, I was scratching from my notes and I was stuck. My wife had a heart attack. People were, people were just, you know, sitting there just kind of, you know, waiting, just, oh, poor guy, you know. And then I said, what I'm talking about is how you felt when you thought I'd lost my place. A reasonable person is a person who is able to transfer himself into your skin and feel what you're feeling. You're able to do that, see. And it's closely related to the next one, which is full of mercy and good fruit. And they're together. And what he's saying is this. You haven't really had mercy until you've tried to do something about it. Now you say you're a merciful person and you have mercy and sympathy for somebody, but you haven't until you've tried to change their suffering. Six is unwavering conviction, fixed principles. It means that this person will never violate biblical principles. He's not afraid to make a decision based on Scripture. He won't back down. God give us a... I wish He'd give us an army of those. And then finally, it's without hypocrisy. The word is hupokratos, and it refers to those people in ancient Greek theater that played two parts. I'm sick of people who play two parts. I've had it up to here and beyond with people who play one part on Sunday and another part somewhere. I, I'm sick to death of young people who play one part one day and one the next. Hupokratos. That person who wants to bring that world from there to here is a person who is genuine. He's going to be a Christian wherever he is, whenever he is. Now the results, verse 16, verse 18. 
The results of the unwise is this, disorder, disharmony, antagonism, and every evil. And I want to read verse 18 again. And this is the result of living a life of wisdom. That is, being able to to know how God wants you to live. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And I want to paraphrase that, give you the Tidwell translation, verse 18. It's this. There is a reward for doing what God commands. And the reward for doing what God commands is doing what God commands. Now I want you you to be sure that you understood what I said. The reward that comes from doing what God commands or demands is not something that He gives us as the result, you know, as a prize. The reward is the doing it itself. And the greatest reward that can come to a person's life is just the reward of getting to do what God demands. That's the reward in itself. That's what I tried to preach two Sundays ago. Now let's pray. Our Father, my desire, my prayer tonight is that that the same intensity toward living a life of faith that James had would grip us and we would not be content with a mere profession. And I pray that you'll help us to put side by side this marvelous passage of contrast. Help us to see that indeed doing what God demands is the right way, the only way. For I pray in Jesus' name and for His sake.